Hi, Char Beauchart here. Like me, you obviously listen to podcasts. You're learning, and that's a good thing, but are you also earning ASHA CEUs as you listen? Newsflash, SpeechTherapyPD.com is offering a new discounted annual podcast subscription, and you need to take advantage of it. SpeechTherapyPD.com is the leader in speech-language pathology podcasts. They produce over 16 new podcasts with great topics, including ethics, every month. Listen to Speech Uncensored, First Bite, SLP Now, as well as the Speech Link. Here's what you do. Go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, access the podcast subscription, and at checkout, enter my special discount code to get a full $20 off. Instead of $79 per year, you pay just $59 and listen to as many as you want. Here's the code. Are you ready? Speech 20. Speech 20. That's it. Choose from over 175 hours of on-demand pod courses and get practical information and your CEUs. <laughs> it's absolutely a no-brainer. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Char Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Personally, I can't remember what I did yesterday, much less 10 years ago, but fortunately for us, my guest does. She takes us through detailed experiences of working in a very special classroom with severely disordered teenage young people. And I don't know how she did it, but as she shared, I felt like I was actually there in the room with the kids observing her therapy strategies. For example, she gives us a detailed account of how she expertly used role play videos in therapy that applied and transitioned into use in real situations. Get your listening ears on, along with paper and pencil. Here we go. Teresa Farnham is a speech-language pathologist who has worked in a variety of settings for several decades, including 20 years in the schools, as well as clinics and hospitals. Currently, she has her own private practice in Mount Vernon, Ohio, called Clarity for Communication. She is an informed and experienced specialist in pediatric speech, language, and assistive technology services. In fact, she was the 2018 recipient of the National Patricia Lindemood Clinical Leadership Award for her role in promoting evidence-based practice and phonology within the profession. Very nice. In addition, she shared her practical knowledge via seminars for many years and is a popular presenter for conferences and conventions. She presents on professional issues, speech sound disorders, augmentative and alternative communication, as well as language with pediatrics and teenagers. And we're here today to talk about those preteens and teens. So welcome to the Speech Link, Terry. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation about those kids with severe disabilities who are on the caseload forever. Yes, me too. I am super anxious to hear about that. Now, we are talking about those older kids, which is kind of an age group that sometimes doesn't get the level of discussion um, of motivational and therapy suggestions that perhaps they should get. So I'm so glad that you are sharing ideas and information with us today about that population. So um, just to begin here, many of us work with the younger kids from early intervention to preschool to elementary. Now, what drew you to learn more about working with this older age group? Well, a variety of things. Uh, first of all, I started my career back when there wasn't a shortage of speech-language pathologists. And uh, my first job, my CF, was at a state institution for people with developmental disabilities. And I worked with adults there and uh, sort of knew that what I was doing probably wasn't what they needed, <laughs> but had some trouble yeah. figuring it out at that stage of the game. Uh, my husband is a special educator who's always had a, a particular interest in uh, severe disabilities. And so we sort of rotated in and out of this uh, population for uh, most of our married life. And uh, my last, the 20 years I spent in the schools, I started working exclusively in preschool. 
and then became a regional supervisor and assistive technology consultant, and then returned to the schools when gas prices first started to go up, and I didn't have to drive mm-hmm. quite so far to attend in my local district uh, instead of driving 100 miles in a regional area. Wow. And uh, the building that I was in, an elementary building, K-5 building, had uh, two special education units at the time. And then uh, my first year there, I was also assigned to the middle school and high school. And actually, for the next several years, I was serving all three buildings. It was a little, uh, rather large bite to chew, but yeah. uh, came out to be quite fun. I uh, The interesting thing to me about this older population is, what can I do to make it more interesting for everybody, for me included? Some of the, mm-hmm. int- oddly enough, some of the children that were in the uh high school multiple disabilities classroom were kids that I had served in preschool. And uh, so to see them, you know, come full circle, (laughs) it was an interesting experience. Actually, my second job, Ohio used to have a separate system for students with significant developmental disabilities. And my husband and I both worked at a school of that type in Amish country here in Ohio. And at that point, I, it was, it's a tiny little school. I mean, it's a tiny county population wise. And I served EI through the sheltered workshop. I had babies and an 80-year-old on my caseload. Uh, So, you know, kind of thinking about the whole lifer thing, I'd look at these little kids and say, I could be working with you for the rest of my life. And it wasn't a particularly appealing prospect. So uh, I I started thinking hard back then about what I could do to make – whatever I was supposed to be doing, more practical, more functional for them, and more useful, more more productive, where I might see some real progress. Yes. Uh, and it, it came into focus for me uh, most tightly, I think, uh, when I was working with the high school. I happened to have the privilege of being in the classroom with an absolutely superb special education teacher. Uh, he was he was amazing. He spent uh, his entire career in uh, – special education with the most severe disabilities and he had a, a system hmm. and the, the best part of his system was that I never did figure out which aids were assigned to which students hmm. he, he really? refused to develop those uh symbiotic relationships shall we say where uh-huh. you know the uh the, the aid is obligated to this one student and the student looks to the aid to get their work done. That didn't happen in that classroom. And it made, it made life so much better for everybody. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was uh, foundational. And then, you know, he was yeah. willing to just let me do what I felt needed to be done. There was a student in his classroom at that time who uh, was, had a severe autism and he, okay. uh, he was a child I had known since he was about seven and had never actually officially worked with him, but had consulted with his parents. Mm-hmm. And he he had been uh, in a strict ABA program for an extended period of time. And then uh, they wanted him to get some social experience. So they put him in high school and he came with this entire uh, buffet of uh, rewards that he was to get throughout the day. Because, you know, that's ABA is very strict and you got to do all that. Well, you know, the other students in the class were not particularly crazy about this idea. Okay, so how how old was this boy? I'm going to say he was probably 15. Okay, so high school age. Yeah, high high school age. And so he's in this high school classroom with about seven or eight other kids. And every time you turn around, he's getting a snack because he did the work. Well, nobody else is getting a snack because they did the work. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, the teacher drew the line and said, you know, we're, we're not, you can do this at home, but we are not doing it here. I was a man uh-huh. of tremendous planning and courage. I was yes. <laughs> to, oh, it's space up to the parents and, and, and do that. And yeah. you know what? It was fine. Yeah. Because there was order in the classroom. He, the student figured out that that was not going to happen. But we, we did have to hold a lot of carrots out for him, so to speak, over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first started in the classroom, or I mean, it was the first year he was in the classroom, I think, the parents were, uh, like most parents, 
sure that another hour of individual speech therapy every week was going to have <laughs> tremendous results. Yes. And, you know, he was not the only one in the class who was, uh, whose parents were asking for that. And um, I knew enough about adults with significant disabilities that to know that that was not the case, that serving someone one-on-one -on -one who has trouble generalizing to real life anyway is it's not productive and in that particular setting the 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 room i had available to me at the high school was the conference room off the guidance office absolutely mm -hmm. nothing to do in there you know i mean yeah. it was a boring room it was a it was a long way from the classroom it was just and i said you know I, we're we're not going to do this i i'm going to serve him but i'm going to spend a class period every week working with this student and all the other kids in the class in the classroom setting mm -hmm. and well they would see how that went you know that was <laughs> they were dubious yes. but i you know i figured if if the teacher could face down the the snacks i could face down the the idea of <laughs> uh, an hour of therapy yeah. somehow being you know the magic you know i i often have said to parents there's nothing magical about my little room right it, in fact in fact sometimes it's the opposite of magical. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's get into the real world and make this happen for this and see if we can make him a better communicator in the world in which he lives. Right. And, and communicates. Yes. And communicates. <laughs> yeah. And, and who he needs yeah. to communicate with. Uh, you know, I mean, he was a child with autism. He didn't want to communicate with anybody. It was not, you know, it, so to create rewards within that one-on-one -on -one situation, I mean, it's just, it was... It was a waste of energy on my part and tremendously frustrating to him as well, or would have been. We never, we never did it. What we did do was uh, have this one period a week, and I don't remember which class I replaced, English language arts or something, and I went in and did a group lesson with the class. Yes. Regardless of whether they were on my caseload or not. Now, there were several who were. There was a young man who had uh, severe physical disabilities. Mm -hmm. He had no useful speech. He was in a wheelchair. He was pretty disinterested in life around him, whether it was because he couldn't connect or because he had shades of autism. You know, we couldn't quite figure that out. We were introducing AAC mm -hmm. to him. Um, who else was on my caseload? There was a, a, a fluency kid. And then there were several students who I had known as preschoolers, but who were no longer on the caseload. At some point, they had been dismissed, assuming that they had kind of maxed out their progress. And there were kids, there was actually one young man in the class who I, to this day, every time I think of him, I think, why was he in this class? I'm not sure. I never, he wasn't one of my students, so I'd never read his file or anything like that. But he he used to go, when the bell would ring for the class change, he would go hang out in the hall and girls would gravitate to him. <laughs> he was quite huh. quite a nice young man and very good looking and very socially functional. But he couldn't read and I, you know, I have no idea what his cognitive skills were, but he was he was poles ahead of everybody else in the class in that regard. Hmm. So I'm not sure why he was there. So Terry, when was this? Fifteen years ago, twenty years ago? Ten. Ten years ago. See, that isn't that long ago. And right. I mean, you've got a room full here of so many different uh, a completely heterogeneous group. <laughs> Just totally yes. heterogeneous. That's the word. And then you have such a span of capabilities and different disabilities. And, and I'm, you know, and I'm fine with that. But then how do you approach some kind of instruction? Right. Okay. So you had this group. So what kind of things did you do in there? Do you recall? Well, yes. I, uh, I started out doing my, my philosophy that I had developed uh, over time. And then when I was a regional consultant, I did quite a bit with kids with more severe disabilities in terms of AAC consultation and, and that sort of thing, okay. um, that uh, I saw people wasting a lot of time trying to be uh, inventive with activities and therapy. And so what would happen for these kids was, you know, it took them longer to learn the activities. And then once, once they got it, the session was over. And the next session, there was a new activity. And so mm -hmm. we spent frittered away a lot of time teaching activities that really didn't have any bearing on what the language task was to be uh, addressed. Mm -hmm. And so we started working with some teachers and, and this is what I did. I, I decided there would, there would just be a few 
activities. I would I would teach them some kind of game that games that would be uh, things that they would play variations of in uh, their social world at home. You know, a, a go fish type game, a matching game, and uh, maybe a, a board game. Okay. And what we did then was introduce topics, but always use those three formats once the kids had them down. Mm-hmm. So they could acquire the new vocabulary. Uh, the repetition from session to session was the learning target, not the activity. Yes. Because they'd mastered the activity. And, and you know what? I mastered Scrabble a long time ago, but I still love to play it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so feeling like we have to change things up is really not, it's not realistic and uh, it doesn't reflect our lives. Most of us yeah. stick with things that we know and love rather yeah. than uh, things that we don't know. Uh, in fact, we're reluctant to do things we don't know. Yes. So let's support these kids by repeating activities or using a scaffold, a framework that they understand and introducing the new stuff within the context of that framework. Mm-hmm. Teresa, I could not agree with you more. In a language course that I teach, I suggest here are therapy tools and games, and I call them multi-purpose activities or universal activities. And then the kids get used to playing those, but you can add any type of target that you want. Exactly. So that you are more focused on the content and the kids don't have to worry about, oh, I already know how to play that. And they don't mind playing it over and over again, or you just, you know, you change it up a little bit here and there. But I am totally with you on that. I mean, they love playing games that they know how to play, and you're emphasizing the content of that activity rather than, oh, let's learn a new game. Right. That's it exactly. And with this population, that's even more true. Oh, yes, exactly. So that was the focus for the first year. And then as I, I started watching them and, and realizing what the general communication needs of the, the class were, I started to shift. I was uh, still sticking with the idea of let's do repetitive activities, framework, have a framework that repeats. Mm-hmm. But what is it they need to learn? And most of them needed to learn how to talk to somebody or with somebody or listen and respond. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So I started, uh, video became my, my go-to framework. We'd made videos ab- about the topic. We would, you know, play games around, you know, whatever the social studies topic of the, the quarter was and uh, have a lot, inter- keep reinforcing that vocabulary, comparing, contrasting, all the sorts of things that you do. And then they would give a, a video report and we had PowerPoint slides to go with it. And I recorded them and then we burned DVDs and sent them home because we had permission to share from all the parents. And I ran into one of the kids who's not a kid anymore Mm -hmm. at Walmart last year. And she said, oh, Mrs. Farnham, I haven't seen you in such a long time. This is a kid who wasn't on my gaze load. I haven't seen you in such a long time. You remember how we used to make those movies? I still have it. No. It was that important to her. Uh. And they they had a degree of success because we could redo it if it wasn't the way they wanted it. We made Christmas greetings for their parents one year. We did, uh, you know, and practiced, what do you say when someone says Merry Christmas? Well, you're supposed to say Merry Christmas back. You know, uh, that sort of thing over and over and over. But with this video as kind of the the reward, and it was a fairly long-term reward going on in the background. Well, they, they really liked that. So the, I ratcheted it up. <laughs> and this is, this is what I really want people to take away is that video is like, it's your best friend if you are working with this population because it gives them an ability to self-evaluate in a way that they don't have any experience with. Their lives are full of people telling them what to do and when to do it and saying, oh, no, you, you can't buy that today. You don't have enough money. Uh, you know, all that sort of thing. They don't have a whole lot of control of their lives. And so by the time they get to high school, they've become pretty passive learners. Yes. If learners at all, uh, they're people pleasers for the most part. They're, you know, out there trying to keep the ripples from getting too big. That's sort of how they function. Um, and 
if you try and teach them a skill like uh, conversational repair or something like that, they don't they they don't have a framework for evaluating whether they did it or not. Ah. And so we started well, several things that I'm going to back up a little bit. Back when I was a regional consultant, it was when alternate assessment for students with severe disabilities was first coming into its own, you know, when testing was becoming the thing. Mm -hmm. As part of uh, getting our regional special educators ready for alternate assessment, we had uh, a woman come in from Kentucky who was uh, Jackie Kearns. She was British. And she gave this marvelous presentation. They had at that time like a portfolio assessment in Kentucky, and it was just this huge project. And she she was telling us how how much she hated it when the idea first came up. That she was just you know how can I possibly do this for all my students? And the big thing was to have them self evaluate. And she was like, I had this girl in my class who didn't talk. She was ambulatory, but I mean her sole means of communication was to do uh, defecate on the floor or okay. something like that when she was upset. She said, how am I supposed to have her self-evaluate? Yeah. But she started, you know, I mean, she was serious about this. What on earth am I going to do with? So she, I don't remember what the first task was for this, this particular student, but I mean, she was capable of doing some things, you know, choosing among three options and, and that sort of thing. And then they'd put a paper together and then she would hand it to her and ask her to say how she did. And they would put a stamp on it, a star or, or whatever. And she said that was life-changing for this student, that she started to be invested in what they were doing in an entirely different kind of way because she had the ability to say whether it was acceptable or not, yeah, whether it was good, whether it was mediocre. You know, and, and it actually, for this nonverbal child, gave her some leverage in her life that she hadn't had before. Yeah. So that was that was a powerful story to me. And I got to thinking about that with this group of high school kids that I had and this student with autism, particularly because he was, you know, always on the fringes when we were doing one of our games or, or whatever. You know, he would participate because the teacher told him he had to, but he was not invested in it at all. But when we started doing video, he was heavily invested. And so I got to thinking about creating some scripts, uh -huh. sort of, or scenarios that we would do and video record. And then, uh, and this was in the era still of videotape. Yes. Uh, I had a, a very nice little camera that I used every time. But now it's so much easier that I, I would not do therapy with this population without video recording capabilities. Mm -hmm. I am so invested in it now because it made such a difference. What happened was that we had, you know, this wide variety of kids and most of them, you know, had limited uh, social skills. And even those that did, you know, were uh, rough around the edges, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And then we had my particular student who had no social skills at all and, and didn't want to learn them. But boy, did he want to run the video camera. Oh, there you go. Yes. And so what we started doing was setting up a list of four, three or four, sometimes five things that you needed to do to be able to communicate effectively. You know, by 16, uh, we could work on articulation, but it's probably not going to be productive. We can try it and add a few words of vocabulary or some, some social phrases, that kind of thing. But they're practically adults. Most of what they have is what they have. Mm -hmm. uh, and so where are we going to go? What, how, I started thinking about what was going to happen when they turned 18 and moved to the transition to work class. Yeah. And what did they need to have? And generally, it was the ability to repair a conversation. They didn't have any skills in that area, most of them. Uh, the ability to look like you were interested in what the other person was saying mm -hmm. and to be willing to speak directly to somebody in a loud enough voice without shouting. And then there was a, a girl in the class who was somebody I'd had as a preschooler, a charming child. Oh, she was just wonderful. But um, she had a very rare syndrome and she was ambulatory and that sort of thing, but she had three or four words maximum kind of uh, verbal skills. Uh, and she, she had this, she has a gorgeous smile and, but she, she was aware enough to know that she really wasn't very good at talking. And so as conversations would wear on, her head would drop down and she'd just get this shy smile, just look kind of like a bashful three-year-old. Okay. 
you know, that sort of expression with her head down. And then you couldn't hear the few words that she was saying because her head was down. So her parents had come up with this phrase, tall head. They'd say, Holly, tall head. And she would pick her head up. Okay. And everybody knew what that meant. So that became one of our rules because not she wasn't the only one who – she was the only one who drooped like that. But she, she wasn't the only one who needed to stand up tall and look like she was engaged in the conversation. So that was always our first rule. And then we would say something like, look at the person you're talking to or the person who is talking. Mm-hmm. Be loud enough but not too loud. It's okay to repeat what you said. If they ask, right? that was the big thing, especially for my student with autism. He said it once and he had some fluency issues and just, you know, that was sort of what his speech sounded like. And if he slowed down or repeated it, you could usually get it. But he was, you know, he didn't like to do that because somehow that made him stick out uh-huh. or something. I don't know. And, and you have to use enough words to explain what you mean. And so I tried to re- keep those things down to use enough words. That was our phrase. Three or okay. four words in each phrase. Those were posted in the classroom all week long with uh, icons associated with each one. And we would review them. The teacher reviewed them regularly in the classroom. I don't know if daily, but often enough, they knew them when I would come back in. So then we would say, okay, so today we're going to practice going to McDonald's. And I had gone to McDonald's and gotten hamburger boxes and french fry cups and you know cups for drinks and all that sort of small medium and large all the things you have to ask for right and then we would as i say there were seven or eight kids in the class and everybody had a turn at every responsibility somebody was the director who said lights camera action and snapped the chalkboard (laughs) somebody ran the camera got to push the red button yeah that was what my student really wanted to do and he always got to be the last to do that because he would do anything else to get to that. Ah. <laughs> so then you know, in the McDonald's scenario, somebody was the clerk. Mm-hmm. Somebody was the customer. And, you know, depending on how many kids were present on any given day, maybe we had two customers and somebody had to wait or we had two people behind the counter. Right. And we talked about what different people would say. And then we would act one out. Somebody would push the red button, record the whole thing. Yeah, if it lasted three minutes, that was a long one. Mm-hmm. And then we would immediately play it on the television in the classroom. And then before we played it, I'd say, okay, so now we're going to look, we're going to look at Ruthie. And I want you to tell me, remember, she's supposed to have tall head. She's supposed to look at the person she's talking to. It's okay for her to repeat. You know, we go through the four or five rules and we're going to give her thumbs up or thumbs down. And uh, we'd play it and I'd say, okay, so what, did she use tall head? Well, everybody but Holly always got tall head. That was always a thumbs up. Yeah. Did she look at the person? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe you get a sideways one. And it was amazing to me how honest and accurate the students were uh-huh. when they did this. And the student who we were evaluating at the time is watching at the same time and making the same very realistic judgments about it. If something didn't go well at all, We'd say, okay, let's do it again and see if this time you can remember to look at the person that you're talking to. And we do run the same scenario again, and it would improve. Nice. And that, then they would rotate positions. If they were moved from being the clerk to being the customer, then the customer had to do all those same things. Uh, so we, we had two or three people on the screen who were being evaluated at any given time. But through the course of the next several days, and this became then the, the framework that was repeated that we understood, everybody would have, a chance, would have a chance to be the clerk, the operator, the director, the customer, all those things. Everybody would have a turn at that. Yeah. And everybody would be evaluated on that basis. And by the time we got done, they really knew what they were doing. Yeah, great. So one really fun thing. And again, it was with this truly stellar teacher. So this may not be realistic for everybody, but the, the our high school is right next to door to uh, a small university and the county vocational school. Uh-huh. And this class was responsible, had a job, paying job to uh, clean up the cafeteria at the end of the day. Their room was right off of the cafeteria. Okay. And they got paid as a group once a quarter. Hmm. And then the teacher would take, they would go someplace for lunch that quarter, at the end of the quarter. So they could go to the 
cafeteria at the university and there were always students who were doing internships in the classroom. So they would meet up with them and, you know, we'd have this very nice time. Or they'd go to the career center where they were in training. They had a, a restaurant for people learning hotel and restaurant management mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that you could go to for lunch. And McDonald's was within walking distance. So over the course of the year, we did all three, very, three very different kinds of settings as to, you know, what it looks like when you eat out and how to do things. Well, when we went to McDonald's, we had two kids in that class who were using devices. And one of them was the young man I mentioned earlier who uh, was, uh, I mean, he had, a, he had a sequencing device. It said, hi. And the clerk says, hi. I'd like a hamburger. What size? with cheese, you know, and they would go back and forth. We had a, we had a script programmed in for something we knew that he would like. So that was that. The other uh, device user, a couple of phrases that she was able to do. So she went up and used the device. It was a Palm Pilot based device at the time Mm -hmm. and uh, didn't have very good volume. So we had been working on when somebody asks you to repeat, you need to repeat. It means they didn't understand. Uh-huh. And that was reinforced over and over and over. And she was able to do that without, and this was a child with some significant behavior issues. She was able to repeat Good. when the clerk asked for clarification because the volume wasn't great on it. Yeah. But the most interesting thing that happened that day was the kid I mentioned who would go out in the hall and the girls would uh, flock around to hang out with him. Yeah. He wasn't anybody that I anticipated had any uh, social pragmatic kinds of <laughs> issues going on at all. Right, right. And, uh, but when we left McDonald's that day, he came up to me and said, Mrs. Farnham, she asked me re- to repeat, and I did. And he was just delighted with himself. Huh. <laughs> I was like, huh. okay. So he really didn't understand conversational repair either. And it's not something that you can teach in the moment. It, you know, you really have to set things up so conversation does break down. So you can practice yeah. having somebody ask you to repeat, and you do it. And using video enabled us to do that. And we could ask every time, okay, so uh, she didn't, she didn't hear Jimmy. Did he repeat thumbs up or thumbs down? And it was an absolutely transformative experience for the students and for me as the therapist, because you could see them getting it in a way that they weren't before because they didn't have a lot of opportunities. I mean, we only went to McDonald's once, Yes, but we went to McDonald's a dozen times in the classroom and evaluated every mm-hmm. one of those times mm-hmm. in preparation for going to McDonald's. We learned how to ask for what's on the menu at a, a sit-down restaurant, which was at the career center next door. And the, the interesting thing, after all the practice about that, people taking turns being waiters and waitresses, having multiple people sit around the table and waiting your turn till the waitress turns to you. And all. You know, there were a whole lot of things in that scenario. When we, the day we went to the career center, keeping in mind that it's a training facility, uh, and it was probably fairly early in the school year, I don't remember, but we waited almost an hour for our food <laughs> because, oh my God, because they were back in the kitchen learning how to prepare it, you know, <laughs> it's oh, like that kind of thing. and you know what? Wow. We had no behavior because everybody knew that they were going to have to wait for their food. We had practiced and practiced and practiced. And oh, I had, I had gosh. made a social story video about the experience as well. I went over there and filmed the room and uh, all that sort of thing. And put it together so they could see what it was going to look like. And the, yeah. the the serendipitous thing about that was that in the course of my time in the, the, the River Room Cafe, the bell rang for class changing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a large room with a high ceiling and terrazzo floors. And the bell is an electronic kind of thing. Yeah. And I got it on the recording completely unintentionally. But there were two students in that group who would have been swinging from the ceiling if that had happened and they didn't know it was going to happen. So every time they watched the video in preparation, they heard the bell. Oh, there's that bell again. It rang twice while I was there because it was the end of the period and the beginning of the next one. And we... They sat there for 45 minutes waiting for their food and sort of chatted. And, you know, the teacher wow. and I sort of tried to keep things going. And it was the power of them having practiced it and seen it, this low frequency behavior going out. Some of them had probably never been in a sit down restaurant. Uh, but being able to look at this on a regular basis, evaluate their own performance and that of others, given 
the givens of going to a sit-down restaurant and knowing, you know, all the things in advance that were going to happen, they did beautifully. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. I love that. And it was that self, it was that self-evaluation and practice, practice, practice. And putting it on video makes practice okay. Yes. (laughs) Because, you know, if you just, we did this last time. Well, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, we did. But it's my turn to be on camera. That's a different story. Yeah. They're ready to do that. Yeah. I love this. And you are combining so many things. You're doing social stories, but it's not on an app. You're doing role play. Yes. You are doing live role plays, situational activities. And then you actually did those activities and put those skills that they learned into real life. Yes. And it doesn't get any better than that. Totally. Now, I have a couple questions about all of that. Sure. Did you have any of the parents say, wow, I took my child here and here and, you know, he or she knew exactly what to do or to not do. Did you see those skills actually transferring into real life at home and other places? Yes. Now, it was high school, so I didn't have the same relationship with parents that you do when the children are younger. Yes. Uh, But the one student who was kind of the focus of all this in the beginning, uh, his mother was in pretty regular contact with me. And uh, she did, she reported that he had, you know, I I think we were practicing going to the store at some point. And that was the thing that he had done differently, that he had known what to do and that he had been able to clarify what he was saying when it wasn't understood. That was huge for him because probably 60 or 70% of what he said the first time, if you knew him really well, you could catch it. But if you didn't, you missed it. And then he would be angry that you didn't get it. But that, that behavior changed completely. He understood not that it was an affront to him that you were asking him to repeat it, but that I didn't understand it. That's why I'm asking you to repeat it. So it's, it's really, it's on the listener. It's not on you. It's your job is to help them understand. That's what talking is about. Yeah. A lot of kids have that difficulty I've seen through the years. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Wow. That's a totally fun way of doing therapy. Yes. Yes. But my thing is always, I'm always looking for something that is, is uh, pragmatic. Yes. That, that actually makes sense to do it again and again and again. And video provided me with a framework because they all, I think watch movies, they watch TV. They, they, you know, how many movies are there that are about making movies, you know? Right. Uh, And, and so everybody understands that process. If they watch the Disney channel, they'd see those kids who, you know, young stars making their way through. Um, So, so it was not a problem to repeat things because that's what you do in the theater. Yes. See that's, and that the repetition is extremely important. Oh, vital. It just, it solidifies whatever skill. And to see somebody else doing it, and then you do it, then another person. And I mean, you're totally evaluating not just yourself, but the other kids and so on. And it just brings it all together. And that repetition is huge. Then when you get into real life situation, They've got it. Right. I would think, yeah, there's familiarity there. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing about that video allows you to do, even if even if they're not role-playing, um, is to practice low-frequency behaviors. I can watch a video social story about uh, the fire drill, let's say. Okay. If I don't like fire drills. Multiple times before there's actually a fire drill. Right. They don't have to stage a fire drill every day for me to practice this. I watch it on the video, and then I know what to do when the time comes. Right. Good point. Now, I want to shift just a little bit. Sure. I know that there are difficulties. What do you think are the major, I'm going to call them hurdles, to serving older children with disabilities? Oh, wow. There's several. Passivity is one, Uh, because I think, 
most of the time, especially for kids with physical disabilities, they have, they have learned to be passive. They've learned to be taken care of. Okay. And the, the practice of one-on-one aids I have watched evolve over the course of my career. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. And in the beginning, it seemed like a really good thing, but I'm not convinced of that anymore because what happens is the students become dependent on the aid and the aid gets, I don't want to reflect badly on these people who work as educational aides because they are saints. I mean, they, they are hardworking and they are so invested in the students, but that level of investment sometimes is the problem that, you know, uh, they, they believe whether they could articulate it or not, but that there's the, the way their student is working reflects on them. So let's get everything right because, Oh no, that's not and And so they, they, overpower the situation the learning situation so that the kid waits for them to tell them what to do and then then he checks the right box on the the worksheet or whatever oh terry that is a huge bugaboo with me i mean it has been forever and it's at whatever level you have a child that's included in a classroom and has you know in the inclusion model Mm -hmm. and has a one-on-one aid and that aid I don't, I don't want to say they give them the answers all the time. I'm not saying that, but, but maybe there's just more, the prompts are more tangible than perhaps what they need to be because there is an emphasis on that right and wrong. Yes. It's not an emphasis on the learning process. That, that is what it is. It's the emphasis on right or wrong. And uh, then, so they are, I mean, they love this student. They want them to be right. And so they give them way more support than what they need. And they're not trained in how to not give support or what kind of support is appropriate. If I were that person, you know, helping that child, there is a good chance I would do the same thing. But I think it's just the situation. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen it time and time again. I totally am just, I have always been concerned about that, that it's just a method of answering (laughs) not a method of learning yeah yes yes it is okay so what other things are there other hurdles in the back of your mind that you'd like to share with us well you know i think intelligibility is always a concern and that is one of those things that i still get shivers when i think about some iep meetings i sat through in middle school and high school with parents you know who wanted their children to work on articulation uh when you know, they'd been working on articulation for forever since age three, you know, <laughs> up through, are we, are we, are we going to get anywhere? What is really contributing to their unintelligibility? Um, and, and is there a way around it? You know, of course, AAC is one route to take, but um, I think that sometimes it's more, it, uh, it comes down to some of the things that we worked on in this group at large. Look at the person you're talking to. It's okay to repeat. You need to understand. You can ask them to repeat as well. It uh, Let's get some give and take going back and forth. And focusing on language and syntax development more than speech sound development. Not that we're going to throw that out. But uh, I, for a, a workshop that I do, I, I developed this little scenario of uh, a transcription of a, a, a child telling a story, a phonetic transcription of it. And everybody looks at that and nobody can, you can't, there's like nothing you can pick out. Maybe one or two words and somebody will say, I think it's about a dog. And well, yes, there is a dog in the story. Okay. So then they flip the page and the, the next scenario is uh, it's the same transcription, but it's meaning. It's all the words that the child actually said. But if you read it, there are no function words. There are no prepositions. There are no infinitives. There are no auxiliary verbs. There are, you know, there's no uh, prefixes or suffixes. None of that. It's just content words. Mm -hmm. And can you understand this? Well, they get a little more of it because they know who's in the 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 action. There's a dog and a pig and uh, a policeman, I think. Anyway, but just how much not having those those syntactic structures in place matters in terms of intelligibility and actually changes our perception 
of the rate at which the child's talking. If they're leaving out half the words that are the glue of our sentences, when they talk, everybody thinks they're talking too fast. They're not talking too fast. Ah. They're not saying half the words. <laughs> so, so we perceive it as fast. And in fact, what we need to work on is getting all those words in a sentence. Interesting. And I think there's some ways to do that with, you know, visual supports and pacing boards and that kind of thing uh, that that pays off, in my experience, with younger children and with older kids to some degree. Did you say every word? Did you use enough words? That was one of the, the cues that we had for the high school. Did, when Joe said, go here. Yeah. <laughs> did he use enough words? <laughs> did, did, did the person understand what he was saying? No. Okay. So what, you know how what should he have said mm -hmm. let's practice it again now the person understands and the 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 action goes on um so it's is worth addressing at that level i think but i think it really needs to be addressed really hard in the younger years so that we don't have to deal with it with older kids yes exactly so you just mentioned a term i'm not familiar with um, which I'm not familiar with a lot of terms, <laughs> but you said pacing board. What is a pacing board? Okay. Well, I, what I think a pacing board is, it's kind of a hot topic right now. When I <laughs> talk to young speech pathologists, what okay. it is, is it's something that, that keeps the child on track, like something they can touch as well as while they're talking so that they know this is the first word, this is the second word, this is the next word. I have done that for years, but just with picture symbols right. rather than having an actual, but right. somebody's constructed something that actually has a place for you to put the, your hand in between. So you know exactly how many, how many words you have to say okay. to get from the beginning to the end. Uh, but yeah, the, what I have done with my younger kids is just have them be like, I will uh, produce an entire sentence with board maker icons right. and have every word marked with something and they come to recognize if we say use the same symbol for two every time they're going to say to go to have whatever it happens to be because they recognize the symbol and so then we're pointing to each word and making sure we say it to get the sentence out yes and it does allow you to be much more intelligible yes much more intelligent okay okay all right yeah i've done that kind of thing I I understand now. <laughs> okay, thank you. But I like that. The first time I heard it, I was like, "What?" And but it is yeah, the same kind of thing we do. Yeah, and and that is the idea because what we're doing is pace. They're teaching them how to pace what they say so that everything gets included, every syllable. Right, included everything exactly. You know, I do have one more question to ask you. Sure. And this is a wrap it up question here. You have done therapy for a while now, and you have a great deal of experience. You've worked with all ages, populations, and so on. Here's my question. What advice do you have for therapists of today? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is that we have the best profession there is. Uh, yes. The fact is that over the course of my career, I have been able to work in a variety of settings with a variety of people and doing uh, things that uh, were great fun and some things that were, eh, you know, I'd really rather not do this for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we have the opportunity to find where where we fit in the best, which is, uh, mm -hmm. is something that a lot of fields of study and work don't have. Uh, you kind of get in and you have to stay there. And we have the, the freedom to move around a little bit. Uh, yes. And, you know, to dabble. I worked part-time when my children were small, and it was enough to keep my brain working, but uh, not so much that mm -hmm. I became overwhelmed uh, with responsibilities of home and work. Uh, so it was mm -hmm. a good balance. And I think, you know, we have the, we're in demand. We have the potential to to say, oh, sorry, I'm only, I can only do 20 hours a week and uh, let it go. <laughs> at that and enjoy it uh in a different kind of way right i'd say to find the the kind of work that you enjoy doing the age group that you like and invest yourself in it try and and keep therapy as interesting to you 
as you hope it is for the children or young adults or adults that you're working with. Yes. Yeah, we do have so many options. Yes. And I like that. Like when I was young, when I was a child, I wanted to be a classroom teacher. Uh huh. And I love teachers and many are my, I have good friends that are teachers, but I would be totally unhappy in a second grade where they're telling me what curriculum I have to use. <laughs> okay. Right. Yes. Yes. I like the option of looking at the kids that I'm working with. And as you did in that wonderful situation with that super class that you were working with, you figured out what was best for them. Nobody was saying to you here, right. you have to use these books. And I love that open-ended, let's get in, figure it out and do what's best for the kids. Yeah. I think uh, Wayne Secord had a workshop he was doing for a while here in Ohio uh, that he, he called a few things done really well. And uh, th that has stuck with me. He had a, a family experience with a child who had some significant learning problems. And he said, you know, we can't address everything that's that this child needs. Mm -hmm. We can't possibly do that. There aren't enough hours in the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what are the, what are the things that are the most important Yes, that are going to have the most uh, spillover onto other areas? Mm -hmm. And let's do, let's choose three things that we're going to focus on this year. And that's what we're going to do. And I, I think that especially with this uh, more severely uh, disabled population, that that's what we have to do because heaven knows they need everything. Yes. But, but what can we give them that will give them the most of everything? Give them the best access right. to their world. Right. And, and that is the beauty of being a therapist. Thank goodness the administrators don't really know what we do. <laughs> <laughs> no, they really don't, do they? Oh, geez. <laughs> and then you just say, you know, well, this, this is the approach that I'm taking. And they go, oh, okay. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's hope that they do. Well, Terry, yes. this has been fascinating. Thank you for bringing us into your world and detailing the kids and what you did in a very interesting way. You know, you made it very live for me. I just felt like I was in the therapy room there with you. So thank you so much, Terry. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charboshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.